When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The students are often chess pieces in the free speech controversies, it seems. They're involved, they're directly affected. But as much, they're talked about as if they're just pawns on a chessboard where much larger debates are being fought about. So to listen to them seems critical, in my view, to understand what is really going on in American universities. I do not believe they're coddled. I do not believe we should condescend to them. And I do not believe with Aristotle that all young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. That was Aristotle's idea, and at the same time, of course, he is one of the great teachers in the tradition. So I listened to Yasin Nasser, who's a rising junior at the University of California at Berkeley and a philosophy major, to hear and find out how students engage with and experience the free speech issues of our times. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Great, so Yasin, welcome, first of all, thank you for joining me on Think About It today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great. So you are, you just completed your freshman year at UC Berkeley, right? Yeah, well, actually, it's my junior year. Oh, so, yeah. you, so you did... So I'm a transfer student. So you transferred, what year did you transfer to Berkeley? I transferred as a, as a junior. I just finished my first year at UC Berkeley, right. but it's, it's like my third year of, of college. And where were you before? I was at San Diego Miramar College. It's a little community college down in San Diego. Right. And how, and so you now did you one year at Berkeley, one year in community college, and you're majoring in? I'm doing history. History. Okay, great. Yeah. And so, so you arrived at a campus at a time when... The nation looks at UC Berkeley sort of of what's happening with free speech, right? (laughs) So you were thrown right into the middle of it. And I just wanted to sort of get your sense of how that plays out on campus for undergraduate students. I mean, it seems like I I think the the first instance in which like I noticed that that sort of the eyes were on UC Berkeley as like the center of, you know, this debate about free speech was was probably when it was somebody was uh, tabling for Turning Point USA and another student got into an altercation with the student tabling at Turning Point USA. And then there was the I think there was like some kind of Trump signed some kind of executive order following that. But, yeah, I mean, it felt kind of weird because it didn't seem like there was I don't know. I'm not super involved in like clubs and on campus and stuff like that, but it didn't seem 
until then, it didn't seem like there was a huge sort of, didn't seem like it was a big thing on campus was the question around free speech and around tabling and stuff like that. And before you got there, the year before, they had Milo, Free Speech Week, yeah. Ben Shapiro and Coulter, all these people. So th then everybody was sort of gearing up for another year. And I think the chancellor introduced the freshman class and said, we're committed to free speech here. This is the campus where this was kind of originated. Um, mm -hmm. But then during the year, there weren't any real big controversy until yeah. this until this incident, right? Yeah, until that incident. Um, and when I when I first came to Berkeley, I thought it was going to be like I had come in with the memory of like the news stories from the previous year. And so I thought it was going to be more like more stuff like right. that. Right. Um, and it wasn't as, as much as I had expected until the thing with the, the Turning Point USA. And was, was your sense that when you came in that it was going to create a problem or it was going to be interesting or what, because you, you were in California already, so you got the news that everybody else did, but you were headed to Berkeley, so you knew you were going into this space. I, I didn't, didn't seem like, I don't know, I didn't feel like it was going to be a huge part of my time at Berkeley. Like, I didn't think it was going to be a major, you know, aspect of my academic career is being involved in that sort of debate and being at, you know, on a campus that's sort of at the center of that debate. Yeah, I, I don't know. I But, but and then... Um, but it does inform kind of the practice. So you're in classes and you're, yeah. you know, you're studying political science, history, any subject really. So it's sort of, there's a whole sort of debate that's supposed to inform how the university operates, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It seemed like a lot of, A lot of the history, like UC Berkeley, that they sort of, you know, like to highlight is the, you know, the free speech movement of the 60s. And so I feel like there's definitely that sort of that like legacy, I feel like is, is sort of definitely played up a lot in like in history classes and stuff like that. But so far as I've experienced, it didn't seem as though there was much of a, it seemed like the classes that I was taking and the courses that I was in, it, there wasn't much of an involvement with the courses on like actual like things that were going on on campus. It seemed a little bit sort of disconnected from that right. a little bit, but there was definitely, I mean, there's definitely, I don't think anybody is is ignorant to the fact that UC Berkeley is at the center of that sort of right debate right and it, it, as a student there it's interesting because you're kind of you're just in school you're taking your classes you're doing your work it's a hard school but at the same time you are actors on a really big public stage because whatever yeah. happens one small thing happens with the table and then as you said it gets the president's attention and it gets the world media sort of focused on one thing. So it's kind of a strange duality. You're sort of a regular college student and you sort of know where you are. And at the same time, 
if one thing happens, it could just sort of set all the media on fire right away. Yeah, definitely. It was, I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah, because like you were saying, there's this kind of duality where it feels like, sometimes it almost feels like the things that are happening on campus that, you know, sort of garner media attention, it almost seems like it's happening in a different like space than just sort of the, like the day to day, like grabbing something to eat on campus or going to my classes or studying at the library. But definitely like, especially in front of Sproul Hall, you know, the, the administration building where, you know, most of the tabling gets done and stuff like that. You definitely do feel like there's, it's sort of the place where that kind of stuff is, is happening. And yeah. And what's your sense of sort of when outside speakers come to so all the things that happened the year before you were there. So Milo and Coulter, all these people, they really, really crave the university as a space. And yeah. I always find that remarkable because they could get a bigger audience by renting a hall or going down the street to a public park, but they want to be on Berkeley's campus. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just because of, I mean, Berkeley's reputation as, as sort of a more, I mean, Berkeley definitely has this reputation as a more left liberal campus. And I feel like, I mean, it makes sense for, you know, provocateurs like Milo and Ben Shapiro and people like that to seek it out. I don't know, like, like after the incident with the table for Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk, like, uh, I think he's the, the president of TPUSA or something like that. And he came and talked with some of the, you know, students in that club and stuff like that. I feel like there's definitely, yeah, like you said, whatever sort of happens at UC Berkeley definitely gets attention, especially from groups especially from groups that feel like they that get the idea that they're sort of the the victims of limitations on free speech or what they would call limitations on free speech. Right. Well, and that's a pretty strong narrative in the media that conservative students or faculty or staff, but mostly students can't really speak out. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's definitely gets, you know, I've heard that from, you know, conservative students uh that i know but it seems like there's really nothing that there's really nothing that i feel like the university itself is doing as much as it can do or is more to me i think even more than it really ought to do to uh to make it a place for conservatives and, and different right-leaning groups to voice their opinions. I just feel like the student body itself is, to me, justifiably not particularly, not that they're not open to it, but just not particularly convinced by the, you know, that position. Right. But do you feel that students, is there any... I mean, it's a perception, so it's a personal perception, so it's not just their truth, but the perception that people say, oh, if you're conservative, you have to be careful what you say. Do you feel that people actually, sort of from your impression among your friends and college dorm mates, et cetera, do people say what they believe in or do they feel I have to censor myself? Well, I think people have, you know, people that I know who are, who are conservative, you know, I feel like they 
definitely make their opinions, their political opinions known. But I think I I feel like students on campus do make it pretty clear that, you know, things which are purposely offensive or, you know, particularly insensitive, that that kind of thing is definitely frowned upon. So I, I feel like there's I, I don't think that there's sort of a an an inability on the part of conservatives to voice their political opinions so long as they're not particularly outrageous i guess i would say or particularly offensive but yeah i i, I wouldn't say though that conservatives feel like i feel like that's sort of yeah i, I don't know i think that's definitely a misperception about UC Berkeley is this idea that conservatives can't voice their opinions or have, you know, engage in some right. kind of dialogue with people. And when right. you when you just said, it's interesting when you said that people can distinguish between a conservative opinion and something that's purposefully provocative or outrageous. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is is there's definitely a lot of debate and and discussions that go about in very, you know, in a very civil fashion that are definitely between what you would consider to be, you know, right-leaning or, or more conservative individuals and more left or liberal individuals. And I feel like really the only time that you have that sort of breakdown is when there's just purposely provocative or purposely offensive, like, Sort of, and and what would happen in a you you're talking about student to student conversation in a regular community in any community whether it's universities or me with my friends or me sitting in a cafe or restaurant or bar if someone says something purposefully to provoke other people sort of the question is that what should people do at that point it's kind of civility and sort of respect you we sort of we have a conversation if I say something to provoke you on purpose. You can say to me, look, this is not a conversation any longer. You're just trying to provoke me right now. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think that yeah. students, when students do that, why do you think this becomes, or it's sort of complicated to see, why would this become a talking point for the nation? Say, oh, intolerant students, they don't let other people speak anymore. Oh, I just think that, I mean, I feel like anytime you have a sort of shift in what you would consider to be appropriate in like just general dialogue like you know what what you would think of as being what the general public would think of as being acceptable things to say 20 years ago is significantly different than what it is now and you know i feel like you go through periods where there's definitely a shift like a, a more marked shift in what is what you could consider appropriate to say in in some kind of discussion with somebody else and I feel like anytime you have that sort of period where there's a larger shift, I feel like people think of it as being a restriction on their freedom to express their opinion, when in reality, I feel like it's just sort of trying to keep things within the bounds of civility. That's interesting it's, it, that you, say, you said society always goes through that, what people said 20 years ago, 40 years ago. So I say this a lot. So I say to my colleagues, when I refer to my students, I refer to the students as young men and women. And 25 years ago, 
it probably would have been very common, probably not okay, probably not maybe accepted. But if I had said the young men and the girls in the class, and they, my students look at me and say, wait, we're not girls. We're 20 years old or 25, mm-hmm. whatever. And that was acceptable by some people, not by all people. There were lots of people who were opposing this for a long time. And now we're in a place where if I refer to a young woman as a girl, they would probably say, excuse me, I'm a professional or I'm a student enrolled in your course. I'm not a kid. So that shifted. So in yeah. some, so some ways you're saying there's new norms in a way, and then there's some, but there's, as we're living in the middle of a huge pushback to the norms of your generation, people say, oh, you're enforcing these rules. <laughs> we can't speak the way we want anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think, I I don't know. I feel like people forget that that's how things have always, I mean, sort of what you would consider to be appropriate in any kind of discussion definitely changes over over the decades and I think every once in a while you have major shifts or not I wouldn't say major shifts but more marked shifts um in what we consider to be appropriate in in discussions and I think anytime you have those sort of more pronounced shifts I think people take offense to that or people take consider it to be you know, people becoming too sensitive or something like that, when in reality, that's just sort of, as societies become more and more inclusive, I feel like language that we use to, to talk about society has to become more and more inclusive. And I think that's, I mean, that's always going to rub people the wrong way. But I think that sort of just kind of change has to happen. Well, it is interesting that this is, you're saying this is a natural change happens throughout history, but somehow there's this pretty strong resistance, or maybe they just found a way to people found a way to frame this as a problem of free speech and censorship. I don't know, I think I think if I understand the question correctly, I think it's kind of both. I feel like there's this resistance to change that that happens often. But then I think it definitely gives conservative figures something to, you know, to talk about and grasp and and gives conservative figures something to if you're able to frame it as rather than just the natural shift or the natural progression in the way that people talk and turn it into some kind of attack on conservative values or, you know, anything like that, I feel like it, it definitely I think it's I feel like it's more an opportunity for conservatives to to play up that that idea than than an actual threat to free speech. And do do you have a do you have a sense that people what if someone wants to just keep on using terms that in your generation let's say a lot of people at Berkeley would consider totally outdated, borderline offensive or just completely inadequate? Well, usually, so far as I've I've encountered that kind of thing, the sort of the the conversation to a certain extent fades out from there, because I I don't know I feel like you anybody who's trying to if, I feel like in in any kind of discourse whether it's in academia or, or anything you have to update the language that you used you can't i couldn't 
talk to a physicist using terms from the 19th century or something like that. I couldn't, it just doesn't, it wouldn't translate and it's just not the appropriate way to communicate with somebody about that kind of topic. And I feel like it's the same thing with, with language as it's used for like political discussions. I think as things change and as societies become more and more inclusive, I feel like if you're not using language that reflects that, I feel like it's, that's, it's hard to have, you know, it would be hard for a physicist to, to, to have a discussion about physics with somebody who still holds like an Aristotelian, you know, picture of the universe. And I feel like that, I think that that applies to political discussions as well. And, and, it's it's really interesting to say that it's normal for language to get updated. It's also sort of the way humanity sort of moves on, maybe progresses. But somehow, let's let's say the the debate around pronouns, which I mean, I've had colleagues, I've had actually somebody on this podcast who said, you know, it's not people should just not use pronouns in these ungrammatical ways. They shouldn't use they and them when they mean a singular person. And then I said, well. You're a professor. You can learn new things. This is a new way of talking about somebody, just like you unlearn to refer to women as girls or all sorts of other things. And he actually said, yeah, you're right. Actually, he said, I don't know why I resisted it so much. It was so rattling to him in a way because he thought it touched on some universal eternal structure of grammar. I feel like a lot of times that kind of thing is... I feel like when you realize that language is... I don't know. I think especially with things like with with pronouns and stuff like that, there's this idea that somehow language refers or language taps into some kind of actual, you know, eternally set kind of category of the, the way that things really are. And I feel like when you realize that, especially like with differences in the way that language with different languages there's sort of different categories that that you ascribe to different things and i feel like once you realize that it becomes easier to adapt the language that you use to be more inclusive and be more sensitive to to the way that things have changed it's also interesting what you just described sounds to me like this is what you're supposed to learn in college that language is participate in shaping the way we see and live in the world. Yeah. And then if you know that different languages can do this differently, that's one of the skills that college can help you develop. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't know. I think the idea that it's somehow, I feel like there's, especially with the, you know, like Ben Shapiro's thing about like facts don't care about your feelings and that kind of stuff. I feel like, it ignores the fact that language language isn't this sort of ready-made thing that picks out individual things in the world and that to a large extent we as speakers and writers bring a lot to the way that that language point you know picks things out in the world like we we do a lot in shaping the categories of the world right Right. It's in, and I mean, the easiest way to think about this, I guess, is speaking a foreign language. 
a non, let's say, non-standard American English, you know that different things can really refer to the same reality in different ways. Yeah. And, and um, let me ask you something else. There's this perception that, let's say, Berkeley is a very liberal college, and there's this whole movement, very well funded by people to say that is college shouldn't be so liberal, there should be more conservative professors, and it's basically a way of indoctrinating students who are not exposed to other viewpoints. And in some ways, if you think about it, you went to Berkeley, you chose to go to Berkeley, and you knew it's a liberal campus, and are you concerned or aware, say, wow, maybe I'm going to get a liberal mindset, I should sort of check out some conservative stuff just to be sure I don't get indoctrinated? I don't know. It, it doesn't seem as though... I kind of feel like it's a little bit of, a, I mean, during the 60s and, and stuff like that, obviously Berkeley was sort of the center of, of a lot of liberal activities in the 60s and stuff. But I feel like as of more recently, I think, I think the reputation is a little bit undeserved as being this absurdly liberal you know, campus that, that really is intolerant of conservative viewpoints. Like, I definitely wouldn't see this as being like a place where a conservative couldn't maintain their, their political views. I think they're definitely challenged a lot, but I think that pretty much anybody's political views, no matter where you lie on the spectrum, are going to be challenged at Berkeley. I feel like there isn't an overwhelming sense on the part of either the faculty or just the student body that there's some kind of like agenda or something on campus. So where do you think this story comes from? It's so, I mean, I'm, I, I'm aware of a couple really well-funded watchdog groups that say they rate campuses on being too liberal, et cetera. Why do people have this idea? About if I'm not enrolled at Berkeley, so all I hear about is what you know my son tells me and what's happening in the news. <laughs> I think, like I said, I don't, like I said about the way that you know, I, anybody here will will be happy to have a discussion with with somebody who's conservative. But I think one thing that is a deserved reputation at UC Berkeley is that. I feel like the students here are particularly interested in making sure that the language that is used in discussions is inclusive and it's not purposely offensive. And I think I feel like that gets confused for being just intolerance towards conservative viewpoints. But when in reality, it's just sort of we're concerned with updating our language. Right. I, I mean, I, I really like the way you're framing this to saying generations, people have to continually update their vocabulary. And how does this play out? Is this sort of when someone says something, you say, hey, this is really not the way you refer to a group of people or this is not the way you frame this? Or how yeah, do you... yeah it's, it's, that's pretty much how it plays out. It's definitely, you just kind of, I mean, it's difficult to continue a conversation with somebody who's not, not because they disagree, but just because the language that they use is, is meant to be offensive 
or it's meant to dehumanize a certain group or, you know, like especially with I, I remember, you know, getting into discussions with somebody and they were purposely misgendering a, a person that, that we had been talking about. And it's difficult to continue to have a discussion with somebody when there's sort of denying the reality of the thing that is being discussed. Um, so it kind of, you know, the conversation kind of breaks down at that point. And I feel like when you say this is, if you, you know, when you say to somebody that this is going nowhere or this is not productive, I feel like could potentially come off as being close-minded to conservative viewpoints when in reality it's it's just a way of avoiding, you know, an unproductive conversation. And in an example like this, would you say, so what if that person says, well, I'm just not going to accept someone else's way of defining themselves. I'm just going to keep on using a term that they reject, they find offensive, that's their problem, their feelings. I'm going to stick with my way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, that kind of goes back to the whole idea that language is part of language doesn't just describe reality it sort of to a certain extent helps construct reality and i feel like the idea of rejecting rejecting a certain terminology that a person prefers to be used when described or that a person prefers to use when they're describing themselves i feel like that is it misunderstands the way that I think language works and um, I feel like it's difficult to continue a conversation with somebody who fundamentally I feel like misunderstands the way that language and discussions operate. Right. And do you think there's a sense when students are at Berkeley people generally pick up pretty quickly of what is the current way of speaking? Yeah, definitely. There were, you know, there, like, even with myself, there were, there were a number of things that I didn't think that there was a particular problem with this sort of language being used. And then I quickly came to realize that, you know, it's not the appropriate way to, to go about talking about a certain subject. And I feel like most people definitely pick up on that pretty quickly. But then there's definitely a group that I feel like picks up on it and and re rejects it pretty adamantly. But yeah, I, I definitely think that it's it's I think it's definitely a place where you can really learn what kind of what kind of language is is appropriate for different kinds of discussions now. And I think some people just you know, flat out reject it. But I think most people that I've met definitely use it as an opportunity to learn how discussions ought to operate now. I mean, that's interesting. What you're saying is that it's possible to learn it. You can be corrected. And yeah. then you can move on from your mistake. Say, I got that wrong. That's probably pretty awkward. Yeah. You know, kind of a conversation stopper for a moment. Say, yeah. The way you just put this is not acceptable anymore. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's not, you know, I think it's something that I feel like everybody at some point is going to use some language that they don't realize is not, is out of favor now. And I think it's definitely awkward and, you know, it's definitely awkward when you realize that the language that you're using is, is out of date. But I think most, most people that I've met are, I guess I would say most people that I've met are mature enough to, to sort of take that as, as a learning experience and try and try and be more considerate in the future. And I think some people just, you know, take offense to that. I want to introduce like another category for this that you could think about it the way you're thinking about it, which I find really helpful that it's language changes, evolves, and people can adjust to it. And then the other category is power is sort of who has power to determine what's the acceptable discourse right now. So there seems to be this resistance to say, you're not going to be the person to tell me how to talk. Because I want to define how you are talked about, or how I talk about myself. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the sort of you know the idea that there's definitely like a concern that when you're talking about saying that a certain kind of uh, way of speaking is out of favor or you know ought not to be used, I feel like there's like an anxiety that there's this weird you know sort of this from the top down saying you're not allowed to say that anymore or anything. But my experience, at least at UC Berkeley has been that it's, it's really our peers that are holding each other accountable. And I don't think that there's a major, it, it, at least in that respect, I don't think that there's any kind of major imbalance of, of power in, in who gets to, you know, say what, language ought to be used. I think there's a, a sort of general agreement, if not sort of a general consensus that amongst students, not, you know, amongst like faculty telling students or anything like that. I just think that there's kind of an agreement amongst students of what kind of language and what kind of dialogue is appropriate and what kind isn't. Is, is, um, is there a way, can you, it seems to me sort of there's a generational thing and you're saying that among peers, you kind of work it out among students who, who sort of what's acceptable. You learn by mistake, sort of mistake and error and then correction. For people in my generation and faculty, there's a bit of we feel we're kind of out of this and then you step into this. And then there's another part. I have to separate sort of the way young people speak to from what I speak. And this other part that you're talking about, where the norms have changed, are there examples or things that people that that comes up on that, that you've learned or that you feel, oh, I didn't realize that before I went to college, or I've adjusted the way I would frame a discussion? I'm trying to think, because uh... there's sort of categories like words I've used because I study, you know, I teach literature and globalization, so there are ways in which to refer to people as undocumented versus mm -hmm. illegal. So that's a huge shift, right? There's a way mm -hmm. in which we're framing differently abled versus disabled. There's a way in which we're saying, you know, transgender or, mm -hmm. you know, they as a category. There are categories that people have used. Then there are major revaluations that people 
you know, used to be called homosexual, then they were called gay, and now they're called queer. That used to be a slur that was weirdly turned around, mm -hmm. that people now refer them to themselves in ways that mm -hmm. that was used against them, right? Then there's the N-word, which is clearly unacceptable, mm -hmm. and my generation is constantly part of my generation, mm -hmm. part of it. It's befuddled to say, how can you play this on your Spotify playlist and not use that word in everyday dialogue, right? <laughs> so, so, so there are all these different examples that people, I think, feel, <laughs> oh my God, there's so many rules and I just want to go back to how I used to speak and you should just put up with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's, it, I feel like it's normal to, to at least have a certain desire to continue speaking in the way that you've always done. I think it's pretty normal to feel like, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. You know what I mean? Like I've been talking this way or I've been using these categories and they fit the world that I grew up in. These categories matched onto the world that I, you know, was raised in. I think the fact that it, feels like, you know, I feel like given that that I think is, is a normal way to feel, I think that it's inappropriate not to acknowledge that the reality of the world that, that you live in has changed. And so should the categories that you use. And I just, I mean, this sounds, I feel like this might sound like overly, uh, I, I don't know what the word, but I, I would just say that I think there's a certain amount of, I feel like it's a little bit immature to to not be willing to to reevaluate the the language that you use just because it's the language that you've always used i think it's pretty short-sighted and and to a certain extent immature not to to reevaluate the language that you use what you said much earlier is that um there's this narrative out there sort of probably includes turning point usa a bit that conservative students are kind of feel alienated or left out or like victims because they don't have sort of this right to speak on campus. And you're saying that there's a certain kind of resistance. It's interesting to me that this narrative that they are the victims is exactly the mirror of the other narrative about your generation, that you're all overly sensitive snowflakes and you can't handle being offended. Mm -hmm. And I'm always really interested how these narratives work in both directions. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think as, especially too, because there's, you know, they're particularly with a lot of conservatives were, were really upset at the idea that, you know, for example, some baker ought to have to bake a wedding cake for a, for a same sex uh, marriage. And a lot of conservatives were saying, oh, well, that's their private business and they ought to be able to, you know, practice their 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 religious views or however you want to put it. And then simultaneously, there's this pushback on, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the only place that you would could even possibly say that conservatives are unable to express their opinions is in civil society. And it's not, you know, it's not in any kind of place in government or any kind of, you know, state institution. And 
I think, you know, if, for example, like if YouTube or something, YouTube's a private company. If they want to take down some video that they feel is offensive, then, I mean, shouldn't they have the same right as the, the baker who didn't want to bake a cake for, for a couple? And I think that it's, it's not particularly uncommon amongst especially younger like uh, conservative groups like Turning Point USA and stuff like that to sort of waddle back and forth between those two kinds of right and you and the two examples you gave there's an inconsistency they say the baker should be allowed to not serve customers but YouTube should be should not be allowed to censor certain content so mm -hmm. if Spotify doesn't want to run my podcast, I don't really have a First Amendment claim. If I mm -hmm. have something that they find, they can define what's problematic. It's not the First Amendment mm -hmm. or the government. But somehow the cake shop can invoke religious freedom and say, I cannot serve certain customers, right? So they're using a different category. So mm -hmm. if, if you ran uh, UC Berkeley, if you were the chancellor, what would you what would you do? It's really hard. I think UC Berkeley spent close to $4 million on free speech events on an event that took about a half an hour sort of free speech week, whenever that was. And I think they're really kind of put between a rock and a hard place. They sort of have the country's attention to say, you're the birthplace of free speech. You have to protect all speech. And then you have these provocateurs who are just there to push the limit to get attention, it seems. I don't know if they're really adding to the academic discussion on campus. And then you have students who are saying, I think the math was done by the Daily Californian. The money spent on free speech events in 2017 would have funded 280 in-state students' tuition for the year. So 280 of your classmates could have gotten tuition instead of having a few firebrands speak on campus. So that's a big calculation. And then saying, well, money shouldn't be the category. This is just free speech. It's an absolute value. We have to just pay for it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I feel like there are certain groups and certain individuals whose platform really, and it's not necessarily because of any particular, you know, disagreement on purely political grounds, but I feel like there are certain groups and individuals whose platform just based sort of on common decency ought not be at least not be completely censored, but just not given an auditorium and, you know, things like that on a, on a public university campus. And I don't know, I think like Popper's, Karl Popper's famous, you know, paradox of the tolerant society. If you, you know, tolerate, you're only a tolerant society ought to have a certain amount of intolerance towards the intolerant or else it just threatens the entire foundation of a tolerant society. And I feel like the idea that, for example, individuals like like Milo and, and Ben Shapiro and people like that, who their entire platform is the dehumanizing and delegitimizing a, a large number of people's experiences and their their actual, you know, lives. I feel like that uh, you know, some individual can't really engage in a free and open discussion with somebody who completely, you know, doesn't think that they really have a right to exist as they are. And so 
I think the idea of, of, of allowing people like Milo and, and Ben Shapiro and, and guys like that to, to speak on a university campus doesn't do so much for promoting the freedom of speech. I feel like it, you know, if anything possibly damages the, the ability for students to engage in, in like an actual productive and free discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting uh, what you're saying, this idea of the Harper's idea, the open society, sort of that there's some conditions that people have to meet to participate in conversation. Mm-hmm. If I'm attacking those conditions, then it's one of the Supreme Court justices in the United States wrote, the, free, the First Amendment should not be a suicide pact, meaning mm. the government does not have to protect speech that will undo the government. So that's the same idea, that there's something... Yeah. So if I'm fundamentally attacking your right to speak on the grounds that you can't, you don't really have any grounds to argue with, like your right to exist is not something to be debated, mm-hmm. then I'm taking away that... I'm not... I mean, you still have the right, you can do whatever you want, but it sort of sets the that ter- the challenges the whole terms of conversation. Yeah, there's no way to... Freedom of speech, I feel like, can't exist when the entire existence of those who, you know, of those who you're meant to be debating is... Free- freedom of speech can't really exist in when the existence or the right to exist of the person that you're meant to be debating are completely challenged or not, you know, acknowledged. And I think that, you know, as a university who prides itself on, on promoting the freedom of speech, I feel like inviting people like Milo and and Ben Shapiro and other figures like that, I feel like that does more harm to creating an open and, and free dialogue amongst the student body than it, than it does good. What, um, if I ask you, I mean, you, you're aware of the kind of um, bind the chancellor of the UC system is in. What would you give her as advice? Say you became the president of the UC student body, you know, you're going to be responsible for 251,000 students in all the campuses. What would she, she said, look, I have to do this because I'm going to be otherwise set up by the media that I've now undermined the First Amendment rights of this guy. What would you say, could there be a pragmatic way of getting through this without spending maybe, which I think is complicated, spend $4 million or without, not a, is there any way in between? I mean, you all, you've seen Ben Shapiro many times online, I presume, right? Yeah. So are there ways to do this without turning the campus into a stage for these people to sell their books? or whatever they try to do. Like, what would you say to her? Say, look, I know you have to do That's... this, but I also think we should maybe prioritize undergraduate financial aid. <laughs> I don't know if I could answer that. I, um... Yeah, that's, that's what, would, tough... what, what would you think if I told you, well, we'll have um, a live stream with this person and we'll... We'll have the UC website stream it so he gets some accommodation, cost mm-hmm. money, we're using a whole channel that other people don't get, and you can all watch it. Would that be the equivalent? Would you think that would be reasonable? Let's say before it even goes to a court and the judges weigh in, would you say, well, the students get what they want. They want to hear this guy or this person. 
I mean, I feel like, yeah, pr pragmatically, I think considering, like you said, the bind that the chancellor's in, you know, that you, you can't look as though you're, you know, attacking, you know, somebody's First Amendment right. Um, yeah, I think that would be, I think that would probably be the best practical solution to the, to the problem. I mean, it, in an ideal world there, I feel like it, there would be an acknowledgement that that kind of figure doesn't do much for, for the cause of freedom of speech. But I think considering the, the, the state of the, the debate about free speech, I think that would probably be, probably be the, the best, the best way to go about it. And would you just, there should be an acknowledgement if the university says, we're letting this person speak on principle, but we don't even believe this is really the principle of free speech that's at stake here. Yeah, I feel like that might, I mean, ideally, yeah, I think, I think the ability for, for somebody to, you know, I think there's just the problem of, you know, how culpable is, is the university if they're, if they're giving a platform to, to a person who is voicing opinions that are, you know, it's not that it's not, it has nothing to do with the fact that individuals disagree or the majority of individuals disagree. It, it has to do with the fact that the language he's using is itself not conducive to inviting any kind of discussion about it. So, yeah, I mean, there's this weird sense of, you know, how culpable is, how culpable are universities who invite, you know, people like Milo when you have this rise in, you know, right-wing uh, hate crimes and, and things like that. There's, I feel like there's definitely a certain amount of responsibility that I feel like public uh, universities and, and things like that have to have to take um, when they're allowing opinions that are not just different but but fundamentally subversive to the entire idea of of a free and open dialogue I feel like there's a certain amount of responsibility there but that's a that's I think really um, productive that you say the university should make a genuine effort to demonstrate our values are something else. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that, I, I think there's the problem though of, you know, although it's not a matter of just disagreeing on something politically, so we're not going to let you talk, but I feel like it, it's very easy for it to come off that way, for it to come off as you disagree with our political agenda. So we don't, you know, we're going to make it clear that we don't support what you're saying when in reality i feel like the, everything possible ought to be done to make it clear that it's it's not a matter of political disagreement it's a matter of whether or not something is productive to any kind of you know actual debate i don't think that any you know especially people like milo I feel like nothing that they're really about or anything that they say, it's it's not because they're conservative figures, it's because the language that they use and the way that they go about presenting their ideas makes it incredibly difficult for individuals who they're 
whose existence they're totally attempting to undermine. It makes it, you know, very difficult for those people to present their own, their own opinion or their own, or their, not even their opinion, but their right to exist as they are. It's the same thing with, you know, and it's kind of a different, it's an even more extreme example, but, you know, Holocaust deniers and stuff like that. You, you can't, somebody who's lived through a concentration camp can't debate with a Holocaust denier and they're not on the same, there's a fundamental like asymmetry in that kind of dialogue. There's no, I think when you're completely attempting to undermine somebody's lived experiences, I don't think that it's conducive to any kind of productive debate. Yeah, this this is actually a scene. This is totally helpful. I think what you just did is to shift it from what they're saying in terms of content to what they're doing by setting the terms of the debate. And you're saying mm -hmm. this is not productive because they're actually wanting to do several things. And one of them is to shift the terms of who's allowed to speak. And the university's yeah. business is to allow people to speak. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's not that they're conservative or that they hold that there ought to be tighter immigration policies or what, you know, whatever. That's, that's not so much the issue is the fact that they're, like you said, shifting the terms on which, you know, there needs to be some kind of agreement amongst two parties of a debate about what constitutes acceptable dialogue. And I think that figures, the kind of, figures like Milo and, and Ben Shapiro again are attempting to shift the the terms upon which those who enter into a debate have to abide by. And I think they're doing so in a, in a way that's totally unproductive to actual, you know, to actual free discourse. So I think that if the university's goal is to protect the freedom of, of speech in this instance, if their goal is to make sure that students and faculty are able to voice their opinion and engage in debate with, you know, with other individuals, I think they ought to limit the ability for people like, like Milo and stuff like that to to voice their opinions in the way that they have done so in the past. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's an interesting way of reframing this whole debate to say the university has an obligation to uphold freedom of speech for everybody. Because I think it's been unhelpful that it's framed of the university censoring these people. Like, mm -hmm. Well, actually, their target is one of the conditions of speech. Mm -hmm. So this, this, I think that's really. I think that's actually what's interesting is to shift this debate a bit and say, let's not fall into this trap right away that they are on the side of free speech and the university on the side of censorship. But say the university is a place where free speech really can happen under certain conditions. Yeah, I, I think, I think there's a sort of um, Kantian thing with you know with the categorical imperative there's this idea that you have an obligation not to for example steal and it's not because the consequences of stealing are negative or anything like that but it's because if that were to be a universal law it's not that the consequences would be 
particularly bad. It's because if that were the case, then the entire category of property and the entire idea of stealing would be rendered meaningless. And I think that the same thing can be said about your freedom of speech in at public institutions and, and things like that. I feel like, the, you know, if you allow individuals to present ideas that fundamentally undermine the very existence of, of the freedom of speech and the, the prerequisites for freedom of speech, I feel like it's not, it renders the entire, the entire goal. You can't really uphold freedom of speech when you're allowing people to constantly undermine it. Right. Right. Yeah, this is actually, this is really great. I'm going to ask you a totally different question. So part of my podcast, I do these free speech conversations and the other part, I do great books. You mentioned Popper. Now you mentioned Kant. What is a book you think I should put on in terms of what's been since uh, you've read those, I assume, in college or maybe before the philosophy sort of what's the kind of thing that book you think would be useful to discuss? I'm doing Nietzsche. I'm doing Marx, the Communist Manifesto. So I have kind of my reading list. I'm doing W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folks. So I have all these big texts. But should I put uh, Karl Popper's text on the podcast? It's funny because, you know, I really like Popper's paradox. But I'm not a huge fan of Popper. It's funny because the two, the two people that I've brought up, Popper and yes, Kant, not I, like, I like the two things that I brought right. up, but I'm not huge fans of either of them. <laughs> I do really like, I'm trying to think with relation to... Or just, in, no, just in general, just the book. Just in general? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so last year I did some of the Berkeley first year reading list. So I did Frankenstein, The Eyes Were Watching God, Chinua Cheva, sort of the books that everybody has to talk about. Something that I'm reading right now is Marx's The, uh, the Civil War in France. Okay. About, about the uh, Paris Commune. Okay. Um, I feel like I feel like especially with the especially like you were mentioning that you you were doing the communist manifesto right and I feel like part of me feels like Marx's work on the uh, Paris commune is a little bit more I feel like it's I I'm pretty sure it was written I'm almost positive it was written significantly later than the communist manifesto right. and I think it's a little bit more mature of his his work like um, better, better marks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, especially the relation to like how, you know, the language that he uses to talk about the state in the communist manifesto is, is pretty different than the language that he uses in, uh, right. In his work on the Paris commune. Okay. That's a great idea. Actually, I wouldn't have thought of that. It's a great idea. I'll, I'll think of that. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's really awesome. Yes. Yeah, so, and I do hope, um, you said you weren't involved in any clubs, but you should think about being in student government yeah. or something. You have a really, you, you had a really useful way of reframing this debate, which I think a lot of people would actually appreciate. So, you could. Thank you. So maybe next time I'll speak to you, you'll be in the, in the UC Senate. <laughs> Thank you very much for having All me. All right. Nice to meet you and nice talking with you. Thank you. Nice to meet you too. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.